Hi, everyone, and thanks for listening to Advocate, a podcast channel by Asian Parliamentarians for Human Rights, or APHR, where we focus on discussing some of the most pressing issues across Southeast Asia. My name is Isabel Maria Ximenez, a member of Parliament from Timor-Leste and APHR's member. Today, we'll be speaking with guests from Myanmar and Vietnam, especially on how governments have contributed to oppressive environments and who have encouraged the targeting of minorities group. In our latest series called Restricting Diversity, we have been speaking with activists and experts on how issues concerning freedom of religion or belief affect the daily lives of minorities and what it is being done to crop dissent. Today, we're going to take a look at situation facing religious minorities in two Southeast Asian countries. In Vietnam, human rights activists say conditions have improved overall, but most recently, there has been some backsliding. But first, in Myanmar, where the majority profess to be Buddhist and the repression of minorities has been so extreme, it has led to genocide charges against military leaders for atrocities against Muslim Rohingya in 2017. The same accused generals have since grabbed power and are in conflict with many other ethnic and religious minorities on the country's border. The host of this episode, Maggie Quadrini, from APHR's communication team, introduces us to our first country and guests. In a speech at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C. on March 21, 2022, the U.S. Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, declared the Myanmar military's 2017 deadly crackdown against the Rohingya Muslim minority that killed thousands and forced an exodus to neighboring Bangladesh a genocide. Beyond the Holocaust, the United States has concluded the genocide was committed seven times. Today marks the 8th as I have determined that members of the Burmese military committed genocide and crimes against humanity. Genocidal process, or you can say you can genocidal trend in Burma, is at a very dangerous level. But yet the world has failed to recognize it. That's our first guest, Jal Wynn, who is the founder and executive director of the Burma Human Rights Network an organization committed to working for human rights, minority rights, and religious freedom in Burma. He says that the Rohingya tragedy could have been prevented, but the world failed to act in time. If you look at the international community, most of the country realized that the genocide could happen. The genocide is on its way. Many times we heard about from experts, but international community has no political will to stop that. So at the end, what happened? Rohingya suffered. Millions of people ended up in the refugee camp and uh, international, international crisis, regional crisis. And there are so much efforts and money has been spent. At the end, why, don't, why can't we stop this from the, from the beginning? It's a very good question and one that will surely rest on the conscience of the international community. Can you tell us, Jawin, what's the current situation? The estimation is Muslim population is around 7 million. And we have now nearly 2.5 million in exile. The result of 2.5 million in exile is the result of the persecution, institutionalized persecution that pushed the people to flee uh, uh, you know, from the country. 
So you can find neighboring countries like Thailand, like Bangladesh, like Malaysia. The large number of Muslim population migrated, you know, as a refugee life. Many things you cannot get what you're supposed to get. But the, the devastation is very wide and very deep. The Rohingya population is among this 7 million. Rohingya population is about 30%, which is about around 2, 2 million and something. A large number of exile is Rohingya. But also there are Burmese Muslims as well in Thailand, in many countries in Europe. So this, the 7 million population has no political role. It seems like the Rohingya are not safe anywhere and that they continue to experience ongoing persecution, including a lack of rights and safety. What does the situation look like for Muslims in Myanmar beyond the Rohingya? I mean, the form Burmese military, they don't differentiate between Rohingyas and other Muslims. For them, every Muslim is in one category. Right? There is a saying in Burma, one day you have to draw how Muslims are look like. So this is, this is called genocidal things that uh, telling the children and telling the people from that what's, how the Muslims are going to be treated. Jawin, we know that since the attempted coup in Myanmar on the 1st of February 2021, that the situation on the ground has worsened for many ethnic groups in the country, including the Rohingya. What does the human rights situation for them look like currently? And can you explain some of the challenges that they're facing? The situation for Muslims in Burma remain the same every time, because we are the one of the most targeted population in Burma. And also, we don't have any protection mechanism as other minorities. We don't have any uh, arms group. We don't have any political uh, you know, group that will protect us. And we don't have any um, solid protection from this uh, kind of any genocidal uh, attacks. So we, Muslim communities, have always been vulnerable in Burma. Given the multitude of challenges being faced by the Rohingya and their ongoing lack of security, what does their relationship look like with other minorities who may face similar or the same types of persecution? And is there any type of solidarity that can be linked with a shared struggle for acceptance? Even Buddhism is not protected by the uh, military because you see that as long as the, anyone who is aligned with their ill uh, strategy, the military will be, you know, they will be fine with the military. But even the Buddhist monks, Buddhist monasteries and pagodas and anything, religious premises are not safe if they are against with the military regime. This is uh, one of the very important things that to understand that what's going on in Burma is not Buddhism against Muslim or Buddhism against Christianity. This is the military who is using and taking free ride on the Buddhism, creating disunity among the people and destroying the image of Buddhism and also controlling the power. If you are not with us, you are against us. That kind of you know, bandwagon effect. You know. They try to push the community that you must hate in order to be a good Buddhist. You must hate the Muslim. So you must hate Christian. You must, so you must hate anyone uh, doing against the Buddhism that we call them, the military you know, pushing that narrative. Anyone whom we call them enemy, you must hate them. So the dictator in Burma, what they did was, they tried to convert the population from democratic to a fascist, using Muslim as a threat, using Rohingya as a threat, using other minority as a threat, telling them that, look, if you follow the democracy and human rights, 
your Buddhism is in danger, Burma will be in danger. Look at this Muslim and this Christian. They will convert Buddhist country into Muslim country. Look around Indonesia, Afghanistan, Pakistan. So many countries, once before they were Buddhist, now they become Muslim countries. That's how Muslims are very dangerous. So if we are not fighting against them, we will Burma become a Muslim country. So therefore, we need military in the power. Jawin, this seems very much part of a coordinated effort by the junta to undermine the safety of Muslims. What have some of your own experiences been like? Teachers sometimes call us the kala means you know nigger. So for them, it is very useful, very very fine, very, and we become used to it as well. And we don't even mind sometimes calling us because we thought that that's our name, and then realize that this is they are calling us as a slave, as a treating us as a third class people. So that's very very bad for us, you know. Keeping the focus on Myanmar for our next interview, we speak to a Rohingya woman and activist who wishes to remain anonymous. Similar to what Jawin was saying, she adds that regional actors like ASEAN have failed to hold the Myanmar military to account for their many atrocities. For now, uh, because of their ASEAN's non-interference policy, they haven't really done enough. But however, ASEAN always uh, tend to stay distance what's going on inside the domestic politic. But this, this makes ASEAN so weak in this, in this circumstance and their interference policy has to change. In terms of accountability, the military junta has largely been able to avoid any kind of consequences, particularly for the perpetration of violence against women and young girls. We see this in the refugee camps in Bangladesh as well. What do you think about the situation there and what needs to be done? When we say accountability, it depends on how you are framing this accountability because the, often the refugee camp has no really proper law enforcement. And there is also the violation from the security forces, you know, like the whoever is there. So the cause in the women and young girl are target of violence is increasing more and more there because there is also some sort of young gang targeting the women and girl um, to be outside, you know, to exercise their their freedoms and to be to involve in the work and just limiting all their um, their ability and their putting restriction on the women and girl is neither actually urgent protect protections having this uh, older restriction as a refugee, you know, like, and then not being able to have a proper, you know, accountability or protection in the camps. It's a dangerous for their, especially for their gender respected women and girls often become a target. Is there anything that you think is missing in the dialogue on understanding the Rohingya human rights situation in terms of their needs specifically? The people in the camp, they have to really decide. And I think instead of we telling them, what to do and what is good and not good, maybe fitting the information. Yeah, situation in Myanmar and then they already witness what's going on in Bangladesh camps and it's to have a proper free talk with them, you know, and we also need to remember the situation in Myanmar, you know, or, or country-wise and going on. Everything has to be discussed and then at the end of the day, we need to figure out what they want. Turning our focus now to Vietnam, where minority groups, particularly those with different religious beliefs, have been stifled by the authorities. We're speaking with Rebecca Deng. 
My name is Rebecca Dang. Most of people know me as Becky. For Becky, her first experiences being targeted as a Christian religious minority in Vietnam began when she was just a child. My parents are Christian, and uh, we were living in um, in a very small village, but it's really remote from the town, and they don't want us to live there. But um, the thing was, my parents do not have land in the town, so we have to move and live uh, nearby the farm, you know. And uh, my dad actually was a deacon, and he uh, used our house as a place for the people to worship God, and the authority didn't like that. So they made trouble for my dad by um, came to our house and points guns at him and tell him to move our family to the town. But my dad was like, oh, I don't have land there. How can I going to live there? So that's the first thing. And the second time I saw like I, I saw them came to our house and they want to arrest my dad. And my dad was trying to pray. And what they did was they mock uh, my dad by uh, put their watch in the pocket because in our language um, from the minority, pray mean like if you translate it into Vietnamese um, language, it's like it puts the watch on your pocket. But in our language, it's different meaning. So they mock him that way. The traditional music of the Montagnards, the indigenous people living in Vietnam's central highlands, may sound innocuous to us, but it is a highly sensitive matter for the authorities in Vietnam. I want to talk about the term Montagnard for a moment. Becky, can you tell us what does that term mean to you as someone who identifies with that specific group? The term Montagnard is actually from a French term. Uh, referring to the people who live on the mountain, like mountaineers or mountain peoples. And for example, in, in Vietnamese, we also translate these words. So is we call it thương. And the mountaineer ourselves, we say dega, right? So meaning dega is mountaineer or dega is người in, in Vietnamese. So, but the Vietnamese authority, they, they, they often, um, take this term dega as a really sensitive word. For example, they would say that we are, we are Dega people. We're trying to establish Dega state. It's not like that. Dega, Dega is a name of a race. For example, we say, okay, Hamong is instead of say they are Vietnamese, they Hamong. So this is similar to us. They instead of say we Vietnamese, absolutely we Vietnamese. Are there any other terms that could be considered discriminating? The Vietnamese, they really like to use the word Jin Tao for addressing to the minority and indigenous people. Jin Tao is really a discriminating word. Mm. It's kind of like they often use Jin Tao is for like, um, the people that's very dirty and they are stupid and they do not have a high level of education, things like that. And they like to use Jin Tao. Instead of saying the name of a certain group, for example, uh, Dega group, they always say in Vietnam, they Vietnamese. They don't use that, but they say Jin Tao. So are these terms, beliefs, and perceptions shared by most people in Vietnam? Or does it sort of seem like a strategy on the government's part to try and spread hate speech to advance their own national interests? It feels like the people who live, the, the, the majority of people who live in the Central Highland, they actually got brainwashing by the authority, by the regime to put hatred 
upon uh, the minority who live in the same community, you know. When we minority people approach different regions of different people inside of Vietnam, like, we can actually feel different way. That's from my own um, experience. I mean, the authority, the leaders of the countries, they actually do not understand the life of the minority. They, they did not come and visit the community. They did not want to listen to what they wish for, what they want you to treat them for. Like they do not want to overthrow you. They just want to be treated fair. So often it seems as if there are forces in our midst who want us to believe that we live in a sort of us versus them society where other people are seen as the problem, even as an enemy to be destroyed. How else do they try and do this in Vietnam? The Vietnamese authority, they actually translate the, the religious belief for a different way. You know, like they change the meanings or they do not have the term of the translations. Becky shared with us lived experiences of growing up as a minority and then ultimately having to flee for her own safety and security. Our next guest agrees that Vietnam has been in a downward spiral in terms of religious freedoms, including an increase in surveillance and interference of Hmong Christians who conduct their activities in their private homes. Dr. Thang Nguyen is the CEO and president of Boat People, a U.S.-based nonprofit with branches across the U.S. and in Southeast Asia. I wonder to begin if you could provide some context into how Vietnam has historically targeted religious minorities in the past. In 1997, the government created a totally new sect. And this sect is not truly the counter-religion because it doesn't share the same basic religious tenets as the counter-religion. So it's not truly the same religion. However, the government declared that this is the official Kaodai church recognized by the government. and then they uh, transfer uh, the possession of Kaodai temples and facilities, including its uh, so-called holy see, that is the administrative seat of the Kaodai religion in Tainan province to the new sect created in 1997. And practically almost all 300 Kaodai temples are now being occupied by the sect members. And not only that, the government uses this sect as an instrument of oppression. This sect, uh, they sent members to the different Kaodai communities uh, using violence uh, to seize their temples and also stop uh, the different groups from practicing their faith in their own private homes. Thank you for that explanation and historical context. It's it's very, very interesting. Can you talk more about how the Vietnamese government currently seeks to outlaw various forms of religious expression and in part target religious minorities? One is the outlaw groups that are independent from the government, that are not uh, subservient to the government control. Two, is to create new organizations that the government control. And there's belief that the, the leaders might be working for the government. And these, we call them government-organized religious organizations. And third, they co-opt existing churches and, and ties them 
to make compromises with the government and to become instruments of the government to control our believers in exchange for certain privileges. And what are some of the repercussions, if any, for those who challenge various forms of authority for wanting to practice their religion? It's always uh, um, dangerous to speak out um, and to demand respect by the government for the rights, any kind of rights. But uh, the right to religious freedom of belief is particularly risky because the government of Vietnam views that as religion as as a forum, as a platform for people to come together and get organized. They view any organized activities as a potential threat to the monopoly on power. What do you think can be done to put an end to the various forms of discrimination that people are facing in Vietnam, in particular religious minorities? We would like to see that the National Assembly explains the law on belief and religion. It doesn't require registration unless a group plans to form an organization. And now it's not being interpreted that way by law enforcement. So the National Assembly needs to come out and explain it and tell everyone that this is how the law is intended to be implemented. So we are trying to do that right now. We are working with different groups to approach them, representatives, the delegates in the National Assembly to ask those questions. Why? You made the law, and now the law is not being implemented uh, in full compliance. So how are you going to interpret the law? Parliamentarians can play a crucial role in working towards fully guaranteeing freedom of religion or belief in Southeast Asia. One of them is by repealing and amending laws that violate such freedom and passing new laws where necessary. That's why we have a new report called Restricting Diversity. It maps legislation on freedom of religion or belief in Southeast Asia. We understand that no changes in the law can solve every problem, and shift in culture and practice also need to take place to create the necessary lasting changes to realize the right for all to form. You can access the report in the link of this podcast episode's description. Thanks everyone for listening to this episode of Advocate. Please subscribe for more unique insight on human rights issues in Southeast Asia from Asian Parliamentarians for Human Rights. This episode was written and produced by Maggie Quadrini and editorial input from Lola Lovieta and Karina Tehushizrana. The International Panel of Parliamentarians for Freedom of Religion or Belief, or IPP4, support APHR's work on this topic. Future episodes on this series will be available in the coming weeks.